Welcome to the Museum of Femininity, a podcast where I, Charlotte Appleyard, discuss random topics of interest that relate to social history, art and material culture through a female lens. I hope you enjoy. Hello, welcome back to the Museum of Femininity. My name is Charlotte Appleyard and today we will be talking about the Baldy House. So the Baldy House essentially was a brothel and a den of vice and pleasure, which existed in Georgian England, a period of history marked by the stirrings of industrial revolution, innovations in art, architecture and literature, as well as an explosion in leisure and fun. Georgians have a reputation for being hedonistic, and the Baldy House is the perfect symbol for their reputation for lustful revelry. Sex was everywhere, in lewd plays, erotic novels and pornographic images that often lined the walls of taverns. Of course, these loose morals were often concentrated in the cities, but also could be found in resort towns like Bath and Brighton, or port cities rife with lusty sailors like Plymouth. Brothels were commonplace and attitudes to sex were surprisingly liberal. For instance, one Brighton tourist guide said in 1796 that the infamous city was, quote, where the sinews of morality are so happily relaxed that a bald and a baroness may snore in the same tenement, which definitely suggests how pervasive such activities were in all classes and walks of life, especially in cities and areas that served as a grey zone. In this episode, we will explore this landscape by analysing and delving into the world of the Baldy House, which in an essence was a brothel, but came in a variety of shapes and sizes, catering to a menu of kinky interests. Such places were embedded in society, and can hold a magnified glass up to issues relating to poverty, discrimination against the fallen woman, leading to double standards among the genders, as well as general attitudes to sex and love. Like with many things, you cannot define a baldy house in one sentence, as they existed in many forms and locations. Perhaps the most well-known and in a sense celebrated type of baldy house, was the unashamed and reputed, thriving in certain areas within the cities that were famed for prostitution, such as Covent Garden and Avon Street in Bath. So open were these baldy houses, the women who lived within them were advertised and reviewed like objects to buy in publications like Harris's List of Covent Garden Ladies, which was written from 1757 to 1795. It was sold for two shillings and a sixpence and recorded the appearance and sexual specialism of up to 190 prostitutes. These houses were often ironically referred to as nunneries or rather humorously schools of Venus. The irony and pretense of respectability indicates just how open the trade was, as this was a thin veneer to hide behind. This is one way of interpreting this, 
But to counter, I would also like to say that in a sense, appearing respectable was a way for baldy houses to survive and attract high-class clientele. And there were examples where women were well-educated and accomplished, possessing many traits that belonged to gently-bred noblewomen. In addition, certain prostitutes would have enjoyed luxurious clothing and fine silks that were often far beyond the reach of the class they were born into, and in some cases may have been used to entice potential girls into entering baldy houses. Although I have stated that baldy houses were quite open, with the occupants hanging out of windows and calling to punters below, there was also an element of secrecy in some cases. The need for a degree of decorum did protect baldy houses from suspicion, as although prostitution was not strictly illegal, there were harsh punishments for, quote, disorderly houses. As a result, we see some being disguised as shops selling coffee or chocolate. There are also cases of buildings acting as baldy houses without directly being run by a bald, who was like a madame. With women using their lodgings to engage in sexual activities with paying customers, in these cases landlords might turn a blind eye or use the woman's misfortune to their benefit. For example, Jonathan Britt charged his lodgers weekly board, adding two shillings for every man accompanying them home. So who ran these establishments? There was a definite stereotype for the quintessential board, being an aged, cantankerous crone. However, many were as young as 25 and rose to great fame and prominence, displaying remarkable business acumen as they diversified to stand out among the competition. Some high-status boards in the 18th century included Elizabeth Creswell and Jane Douglas, and women like Elizabeth Weisborn, who worked during Queen Anne's reign and played to the nunnery guise, keeping an open Bible in her brothel. Charlotte Hayes, who was working in 1770, was in her 20s when she established her glamorous baldy house, which became widely recognised for catering to exotic tastes. Often the themes her house adopted were influenced by discoveries and travel, and played to damaging ideas about non-Western civilizations. For example, she hosted a Tahitian orgy, where 23 men of high status were invited to partake. This included 11 members of parliament, proving how pervasive sex work was in all walks of life, including those who were in charge of the country. Other examples of baldy houses with particular specialisms includes Teresa Berkeley's Whipping Parlour, which was known for a host of fetish and bondage objects, including birch rods, leather straps and pulleys attached to the ceiling by which she could draw men up by their hands. Other houses were rife with role-playing opportunities. For example, during one raid, a merchant was discovered dressed as a priest. We will go into the raids a little more later on in this episode. 
During the 18th century, the gentleman was not necessarily perceived to be dignified and noble. More often than not, he was a rakish libertine seeking out lustful pleasure. Indeed, this is a huge example of double standards between the genders, for of course a lady of high birth was expected to remain chaste and pure, whereas the opposite was presumed of young men. You have the establishment of things like the Hellfire Club, where debauchery was encouraged, although lecherousness was also ridiculed, especially when the gentleman aged and men like the Duke of Queensbury became common jokes for their behaviour. In the rhetoric around female sex work, we also get the impression that these women were predatory and enticed men with their feminine powers. For example, in the play The Orphan, the character Thomas Otway warns, Keep thy eye from wandering, man of frailty, beware the dangerous beauty of the wanton, ruin like a vulture waits on their steps. Which definitely makes you think of a bird of prey circling these poor men, <laughs> waiting to ensnare them. It was perceived that a particular attachment to the brothel could ruin a man in many ways, including, of course, financially and morally, but also in terms of health due to the risk of catching venereal disease. This is encapsulated in a 1750 quote from the Lord of Chesterfield, who advised his son, A man may lose his heart with dignity, but if he loses his nose, he loses his character into the bargain. So to get venereal disease would have been considered a great embarrassment and probably would have had serious implications on the man's future and how he was perceived by society. So I suppose there were some consequences for men who dabbled in this type of leisure activity, but generally it was considered to be a normal thing to do within the parameters of what was socially acceptable. So women who worked as prostitutes were hugely varied. Some, unfortunately, did not have the protection of a building and walked the streets, picking pockets and doing what they could to survive. Living in a baldy house gave women protection, but they were still controlled by the bald. Although they did have job security, and of course it would have been much safer, a handful of prostitutes became very wealthy and some famous. These women were able to navigate high society, choose what they did with their day and when they worked. But I think this is quite rare. One example is a woman called Fanny Murray, who was born in Bath in 1729 and after working for a time as a flower seller, became a prostitute and also extremely famous for her beauty and curvaceous figure. She moved to London and became something called a dress lodger, which was an indentured prostitute who had to work to, part to pay off the debt that had piled up from her purchasing fine garments to wear. So it's this vicious circle of needing to look a certain way to get customers. 
um, but then having to pay it off and it just goes round and round and round. And it gave the pretense of her doing quite well for herself, but in reality, she was living in poverty. Things changed for her a bit after she met the pimp of Covent Garden, Jack Harris, of the Harris's list of Covent Garden ladies. And he sort of took her under his wing. And from then on, she became this hot commodity and she was the lover of numerous politicians and noblemen, such as John Montague, who was the fourth Earl of Sandwich. And she was also a bit of a celebrity and a trendsetter who was highly sought after for, for her services. Eventually she married, and although she lived a life of relative prosperity, her marriage was turbulent and there was much infidelity on both sides. Her husband died and left her in debt, uh, but she did successfully marry again and uh, she lived out her later years in peaceful prosperity. Fanny Murray's story reiterates the independence successful prostitutes enjoyed, but also the lack of options for women in poverty and how easy it was to get trapped in a situation when you're being manipulated and controlled. It seemed to work out well for her, though, but I think a lot of other ladies who were dress lodgers were probably not as lucky as she was. Although baldy houses and sex work were common in the 18th century, this does not mean there were not critics, and of course the loudest came from the church. This goes back as early as 1703, when people like John Dunton would follow women of this trade around, shouting biblical verses at them, more to proclaim his own virtuosity than to actually help them out of the situations they were in. From the mid-18th century, the idea of the fallen woman started to emerge as people looked upon them with more sympathy than suspicion. In the previous century, during the Reformation, there had been more of a crackdown on baldy houses. For instance, in the infamous Baldy House Riot in 1668, this saw moral crusaders devastate brothels in Moorfields and East Smithfield. Later in 1702, a blacklist was also produced with 5,645 keepers of, quote, houses of baldy or whores, night walkers, end quote, to justice. However, later in the 1700s, the Morning Chronicle would complain about such raids as it disturbed the peace of the neighbourhood, suggesting these establishments were just a part of life. So what was the punishment for those dwelling inside these disorderly houses? Sometimes it was just a fine, but sex workers were also punished for poor conduct, the biblical flogging was considered to be appropriate, causing a crowd of people to watch as the lady would be stripped to her waist and whipped, in a manner that was humiliating and a sickening form of entertainment for some. Incarceration was also on the table. There was such a mixed attitude to prostitution in the Georgian times that evolved over time. Of course, here we see women facing shocking treatment and being constantly objectified and treated like temptresses. 
but there was also a need to reform these women and a slightly patronising desire to improve them. We start to see places like Locke Hospital form in 1747, which was created to treat those with venereal diseases, and the likes of the Foundling Hospital, created shortly after in 1749, the illegitimate babies and children of fallen women, many of which were prostitutes. Another institution like this I want to touch on is the Magdalene Hospital, which based on the name was exclusively for prostitutes and served as a rehabilitation centre. There was a clear hierarchy within this establishment, as outlined in a 1758 meeting. Quote, there was to be a superiority of ward, the lower wards to take inferior person or those degraded for misbehaviour. The women might be promoted to higher wards. The wards were highly structured and residents had to follow strict rules. They were assigned their own beds and had a single box for their possessions, which was kept under lock and key. In addition, family who might want to visit had to apply to gain access, making it seem more like a prison than a home. This is further emphasised by how routine-driven their day was, and the way each woman had to fulfil a certain task and duty. Furthermore, there was a particular uniform every fallen woman needed to wear. Quote, Upon admission, their clothes are taken from them and returned to them when they leave. They are issued with grey chalon gowns. All women wore the same uniform. Their diet mills were agreed by the overseeing committee, with a couple of the mills being hung on a board in each ward. The purpose of this and similar establishments was to rehabilitate prostitutes and to bring them into a more respectable way of life. I think this quote from 1758 is telling. 509 had been reconciled to and received by their friends or placed in services in reputable families and to trades. 38 proved lunatics and afflicted with incurable fits. 28 died. 150 were uneasy, under restraint, and dismissed at their own desire. 37 never returned from hospitals to which they were sent to be cured. 201 were discharged for faults and irregularities. 73 were still present. Total, 1,036. It makes for uncomfortable reading, as this list seems to strip away the residents' humanity and perpetuates the idea of sex workers being sinful and tainted in some way. The Magdalene laundries, of course, are infamous and continue to run into the 1960s. This is perhaps a story for a different day. In conclusion, the Baldy House can serve as an interesting historic example for many aspects of Georgian England. It encapsulates the hedonism of the time in contrast to the more puritanical Victorians that were to come. In a similar vein, it also represents the growth in nightlife and leisure activities. Additionally, the growth and commercialisation of this trade runs in line with the flourishing of print culture, as seen in Harris's Covent Garden Ladies publication, and in a sense that celebrity gossip and intrigue as seen in the life of women like Fanny Murray, who was famous and had many dirty songs written about her. 
As well as culturally, the life of those living in a Baldy house also uncovers some troubling truths about gender relations, as we see the lack of job opportunities for poor single women, which also shines a light on the terrible class imbalance and the desperation many women felt when entering into this trade, with little other choice. Furthermore, a double standard in the upper classes is revealed in the wealthy clientele who entered the doors of the Baldy House, including politicians and noblemen looking for a bit of fun, while their wives and sisters had to sit demurely at home. These feminine expectations are also exacerbated in the pageantry of certain Baldy Houses, who tried to replicate the finery of a wealthy lifestyle, but with a bit of sex mixed in, giving it a touch of of respectability to the whole affair. What struck me most was how prostitutes are rarely depicted as humans and seem to be caricatures of the evil foul-mouthed wench waiting to trick men and steal away innocent girls, temptresses looking to ensnare a wealthy patron without caring if she gave him venereal disease, or indeed the helpless victim waiting for the kindness of a charitable soul as seen in the common trope of the fallen woman. Even Fanny Murray was a commodity of sorts, in, and her voice is lost in the sensationalised memoir about her life. All in all, this topic can reveal so much about the way women were viewed and treated during this time. And although some used their independence to gain respect and freedom, sadly many would have struggled to lift themselves out of their situation and find a path out of that life. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I am indebted to the book The Georgian Baldy House by Emily Brand, which was a lovely summary of this subject. And I will also include my other sources in the show notes, as well as some images on Instagram, which you can follow at the Museum of Femininity, which will colour this episode and give you a bit more background. Had a bit of a break, but I'm glad to be back and hopefully I will be posting more consistently. And I just want to say I really appreciate some of the messages I've been getting on Instagram. It always surprises me that people listen to me. This is something I, I do for fun to keep me in touch with my, my historic and art interests. So the fact that people seem to listen and enjoy is just an added bonus. And yeah, if you have any suggestions for future episodes, please uh, let me know. I would love to chat. So I hope you enjoy the rest of your day and I will see you again soon. Goodbye.